Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, President Trump ramps up attacks against mail-in voting, while more states make the option available to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Local campaigns, including the hotly contested Marky Kennedy Senate race, try to get voters' attention virtually. And who will be Joe Biden's soon-to-be-announced running mate? It's a full hour of insight and analysis from the mass politics profs. Joining me remotely, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hi, Aaron. Hello. Also with me, Shannon Jenkins, Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. Hello, Shannon. Hello. And Peter Ubitaccio, founding dean of the Thomas and Donna May School of Arts and Sciences and associate professor of political science at Stonehill College. Welcome back, Peter. Thanks for having me, Kelly. All three are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. So uh, I want to start on a somber note because we've we've learned now that 100,000 people have died from COVID-19. Uh, it seems so shocking and doubly shocking because it happened so fast in the last three months. Of course, worldwide, there are even more cases. The question is, will COVID-19, how the nation responded and how people are feeling about losing uh, and the loss of so many, uh, be impactful during the upcoming presidential election? I'm wondering if this is something that all of you believe is going to be around for a while and be uh, be something that voters take into account. And before you respond, I just uh, want to say this. Uh, President Trump did put out a statement speaking to the, the somberness of the moment. But Joe Biden posted a video uh, to observe the 100,000 lives lost in the United States due to COVID-19. Let's take a listen. 100,000 lives have now been lost to this virus here in the United States alone. It's made all the worse by knowing that This is a fateful milestone we should have never reached. We could have been avoided. According to a study done by Columbia University, if the administration had acted just one week earlier to implement social distancing and do what it had to do, just one week sooner, as many as 36,000 of these deaths might have been averted. And that, again, was Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee uh, for the presidency. Uh, Aaron, will COVID-19 have staying power as an issue for voters in the fall? If it doesn't, that's not a country I want to live in. Um, You know, I never thought a pandemic would become this partisan this quickly. Uh, I think the response now, now that we're in May, June, is, you know, sort of the tale of two responses. There's um, a lot of people still taking it very seriously, realizing what phase one is and looking that up. And then there's, you know, led by Donald Trump, the willful denial, a quick pass to those 100,000. But, um, you know, those 100,000 were vulnerable, most of them. And, you know, let's open up the economy, go to the beach. Um, So I, I think it will be absolutely central to the campaign, but not in the way I anticipated where it would be you know, how, how do we do better? How could we have responded better? I think it will be more, you know, Donald Trump's trying to look beyond it 
and Joe Biden trying to uh, remind of just how devastating the humanity, the, the human toll is. Peter? I, I agree with Aaron completely. Uh, I think it, it should be uh, the only issue in this fall election, the, the serious mismanagement of this crisis by uh, the White House really should be the only thing we would uh, normally discuss. But, you know, this this president and his base have a a habit of uh, being able to deflect successfully and uh, leaving opponents trying to figure out a a strategy to come back uh, because it's it's so unprecedented uh, that a a president could govern in four months, lose 100,000 Americans and essentially proclaim victory. So, you know, I think Joe, Joe Biden's response is exactly the right one. Um, but I do think that uh, it, it's not it, it, it's not going to be the issue that we think it might be at this moment, unless it gets dramatically worse uh, in the fall, including, you know, into the election season. But if it you know continues to plateau and there are outbreaks here and there, you know, I, I suspect that uh, other issues, per- particularly the issue of the economy, will uh, become more important in voters' minds. Shannon. So, uh, you know, I'd agree with my colleagues, but I would also add, I don't think this is going to change very many voters' minds. I think it might change a few minds at the margin. Um, we see it's tending to hit sort of Democratic states more heartily and less in sort of Republican states. And, I, you know, I have some relatives down in more Republican states, and they say it's like a whole different world. Um, so I think it's only going to serve to sort of reinforce people's original tendencies, although it may change the minds at the margins. Um, and in a tight election, changes at the margins may matter. So it, it, it does have some potential, I think, to, to alter the outcome of the election. Um, but it depends on sort of how how long this persists and whether we're seeing Um, second waves on into the fall. Okay, let me move on to those voters that you um, were speaking about and the question of whether they will be able to vote in person, um, as many of them had anticipated, as I had anticipated, as we all had anticipated before this crisis came to be. So the mail-in voting as an option has become quite partisan in its discussion right now, Uh, but it's on the table for a lot of states. There are only five states that um, everybody does it. All all voters can get mail-in in ballots. Uh, California switched uh, some time ago, so that's everybody in California will get that. Other states have taken a step to adjust the absentee balloting rules, which require you to have an excuse, meaning there's a reason why you had to have an absentee ballot, that you could not get to the polls in person. So they've changed those rules to expand uh, the use of mail-in ballots in that way. Uh, But many, many other states, including Massachusetts, are sort of in limbo right now. Both Secretary of State Bill Galvin, who's in charge of the election, and co-chairs of the Election Laws Committee of the legislature, Representative John Lawn and Senator Barry Feingold, both put proposals forward to expand mail-in voting for Massachusetts, but it hasn't happened. But there's a larger point, which is, um, why is it a partisan issue? From a political science standpoint, how, how did we get here? What's what's at stake politically that some people seem to be reading partisanship into? Because I want to say that in the past, both Republicans and Democrats very solidly supported mail-in ballots. In fact, the president himself has used mail-in ballots, no matter what he says about it. So start with you, Peter. Uh, you know, so in increasing access to, to the ballot is um, a political loser for many Republicans and creates a lot of uncertainty for all other incumbents. So, 
you know, when, whenever you you get more people to vote, what you what you're really doing is you're typically getting more Democratic leaning voters uh, to vote. And so there's a reason why in, in some states uh, and at the White House now, despite you know, the president's own personal choice to vote by mail, uh, they, they would want to put the brakes on increasing the number of people who turn out because they think it's a political loser for them nationally and in key districts around the country that could possibly flip. Having said that also, many incumbents you know, would prefer uh, voter rates to remain what they are or even a little bit lower because they, they prefer stability, particularly stability of their tenure in office. And so any time that you seek to increase the number of people who, who turn out to vote, you're creating uh, instability in their own political future. You know, this is this is really just a logistical issue. It takes funding uh, and it takes logistics. And Massachusetts hasn't been a particular leader in increasing access to, to the ballot. And as we approach June before a September primary and November election, it's getting getting awfully late. I would agree with you about the lateness of the hour. Uh, Shannon, there is a study by Stanford. They looked at California, Utah, and reported that actually um, there was no difference in, you know, no boost to either party because of an increase in in mail-in ballots. That's one study. Um, Also, the same study said there was no increased activity in people voting, period. So it seems to have sort of a flat effect overall, according to their study. So, you know, uh, obviously the president and Republicans have been very vocal about believing, as as Peter has said, that it gives Democrats an edge. But at least that one study said, no, it didn't. Uh, I think that's definitely consistent. And you sort of stole my thunder what I was going to talk <laughs> about, that, that the political science research is pretty clear on this. Um, that there really isn't a partisan advantage for mail-in voting. Um, I do also want to sort of extend that and talk about what the research suggests is best practices with regard to this. Um, Mike McDonald and Dan Smith down at University of Florida have done, been doing a ton of really great research on this. Um, and in thinking about where we should go and what we should do, a lot of states are turning to mailing out absentee ballot requests that, that you then mail back and that the, you get the ballot and then it goes back. That's not best practice. Right, because we end up with um, a lot of rejection of absentee ballot requests um, and also mail-in ballots. Best practice is to just mail everyone a ballot and allow them to vote. Even when we do that, Smith and McDonald have found that there's really differential rates of rejection of those absentee ballots. And those rejection rates tend to be associated with things we associate with parties. Minority voters, young voters tend to have their ballots rejected at higher rates. Um, And so we need to be really careful as we think about how we're going to do this to make sure we're following best practices and to ensure that everyone's votes have counted. And so I'll echo Peter's, you know, worries that it's late in the game for this in Massachusetts. Um, And we really need to get cracking on this if we really want to do this right. So two things, Aaron. Uh, First, Governor Baker said actually to one of our programs, Boston Public Radio, as recently as last week, that there was no rush in considering whether or not we were going to do mail-in balloting because the election was far away. That's a those are quotes from him. Secondarily, President Trump, in addition to worrying about Democrats getting an edge, um, has claimed fraud. So let's take a listen to uh, President Donald Trump attacking California's executive order to expand vote by mail in the state. People that aren't citizens, illegals, anybody that walks in California is going to get a ballot. We're not going to destroy this country by allowing things like that to happen. We're not destroying our country. 
This has more to do with fairness and honesty and really our country itself. Because when that starts happening, you don't have a, a fair, it's, you have a rigged system. All right, Aaron, you want to respond? That is, uh, you know, Trump's greatest hits album right there. Uh, Mail-in voting uh, Republicans incorrectly, according to the literature, you know, Shannon just reviewed, surmise that it's not good for them. Um, you know, political parties have two options in tight elections. You can try to keep the other people from voting, or you can try to bring more people into your tent. Uh, Trump obviously hasn't tried the bigger tent approach. So, you know, I think this does two things. One, people aren't talking about COVID when um, the, the, um, the specter of voter fraud is back in the fore. Um, he's, you know, talking about undocumented individuals again. He's trying to make this issue a partisan one. When, when we really step back from it, what we're saying is we're trying to expand access to the ballot, the right to vote during a pandemic. When you state it in such fashion, it seems so straightforward. I mean, in, in my classes, I talk about, you know, the, the census, uh, we're able to contact everyone with the census. The United States is certainly adept enough to be able to do mail-in voting in uh, a fair way that um, captures actual voters. We have models from California, we have models from Colorado, but politics isn't about rationality. Oftentimes it's about um, how people feel and tapping into their fears. And that's what's going on with um, politicizing mail-in votes. Well, um, now we're, it's, it's going to sound like we all talked out of both sides of our mouth because in a special election in uh, Plymouth that just happened, the Democratic candidate, Susan Moran, won uh, because of an additional 800-plus mail-in ballots. Uh, it looked initially like her Republican opponent was a winner, and then the ballots came in later in that day. Now, it was a very low turnout election, so that should be put into context. But there you have it. <laughs> what You want to <laughs> respond to that, Erin? Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, that's why we don't generalize from one or two elections that, yeah, it did flip. And to your point, if we put it in context, this is during a pandemic. And, you know, I happen to know a lot about that race in Western Mass. You know, the Republican who held it for years, Mike Knappick, stepped down during the middle of his term for a better job. Uh, then Don Hummison, who's chief of staff, who took over, stepped down for a better job, ran for mayor. So there's a history there of the Republicans abandoning the district. <laughs> You've got Donald Trump, who's become incredibly unpopular. Um, and even in a right-leaning district, um, you know, a lot of Westfield and some of those areas have been hit really hard by COVID. So I think what's going on there has a lot more to do with the context you mentioned than mail-in voting. All right. Uh, Peter, you want to weigh in? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I agree with Aaron. You know, that it, it was a funny election. Um, Moran actually was the, the predicted winner after the, the ballots were counted, but it was the town of Plymouth where she initially um, lost. And then when they counted the mail-in ballots, she won. But she had already won the towns of Falmouth and, uh, and Sandwich and then was victorious in the race, but then uh, moved ahead in Plymouth. And so, and that's significant because, you know, Plymouth is, is a, a fairly big uh, municipality in in the district, and you could make the case that it really just flipped back. It was a Democratic seat held by a former Senate president, then held by a very popular uh, Republican who doesn't align himself with the Donald Trump wing of the party. The Republican nominee did align himself with Donald Trump, and Democrats retook the seat. So 
you know, I'm, I'm always leery about trying to read too much into special elections in Massachusetts, but this region, I happen to live in that district, is still one of the more conservative uh, parts of the state that uh, where, where Donald Trump will do well. He won't win, but uh, he'll do better than he would elsewhere. So it'll remain competitive in this fall, regardless of whether it's in person or mail-in ballot. Shannon, you want to add something? Yes, this is one election, and our research about partisan advantage crosses many elections, so we know that. But I also really think it's important to point out um, that political science research suggests that actual vote fraud is exceedingly rare, right? Very, very little vote fraud, even in mail-in elections. But what political science research will also tell you, that laws meant to prevent, quote-unquote, vote fraud are extremely effective at disenfranchising Mm -hmm. voters, millions of voters, right? Potentially poor voters, minority voters, young voters, right? It is an effective strategy for Republicans, but it's also deeply problematic, right? Because if we want our elections to be fair, right, then everyone should have the ability to vote. And that's just not the case now for a broad swath of the American electorate. Hmm. One more thing about that special CAPE election. There are actually two state Senate district special elections uh, most recently. And the result was Republicans in the state legislature now have only four seats. How do you respond to that? That's not a good thing, I think. But what, what do you all say? If you're a Democrat, you're pretty happy. <laughs> well, yeah. it, you know, it looks okay. good for the future. Yeah. But from, you know, t- taking a more macro view, again, like you get a bunch of political scientists on. We'd like to talk about the literature. <laughs> um, but uh, partisan, the, the less party competition you have, the more corruption mm-hmm. uh, is more likely uh, because, you know, you don't have party competition. So um, from the idea of a good functioning state democracy, I think it is problematic that we don't have uh, two parties that are competitive uh, legislatively. Uh, But again, if you're a Democrat, you're smoking a cigar and pretty happy. That's Erin O'Brien from UMass Boston. Shannon, you wanted to add something? That was exactly what I was going to say, right? I mean, the lack of partisan competition is a problem um, in in the state of Massachusetts. um, And I don't know how we fix it, to be honest. Mm. That's Shannon Jenkins from the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. Peter. I agree with my colleagues. I don't think it's a healthy situation for the state. I happen to live in a in a district, both state rep, Senate, congressional that that is competitive. It's it's good to have choices. It's good to have interparty competition. Um, it's healthy for democracy when when voters have have choices. And far too often in Massachusetts, uh, they don't. And so. You know, this is uh, partly a product of the Republicans' own doing. They they are constantly at war with each other, and uh, they in this cycle they they chose some some pro Donald Trump candidates that simply don't fit the electorate here in Massachusetts. So, you know, I suspect that this situation is not going to change anytime soon in the state. Hmm. Okay. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth, and Peter Rubitaccio of Stonehill College. We're discussing the latest local and national political stories you need to know. Let's go to a local race, which is actually also a national race, looking at uh, the Senate race between uh, Joe Kennedy and Ed Markey. And the overarching issue for both of them is that they've had to try to compete in this time of COVID-19 when you really can't 
press the flesh, literally. You can't <laughs> press the flesh and, and be out there among people. So they've been trying all kinds of stuff to get the attention of voters uh, virtually. Um, first, let's take a listen to Joe Kennedy's latest campaign ad. It's fairly traditional. It's been running on um, television. So here it is. Right now, our country's hurting. We need relief. That's why I'm fighting for life-saving medical equipment, COVID testing for everyone, direct cash payments, and paid sick leave for all. It will take shared sacrifice and progressive willpower to fix the damage done by President Trump. But together, we will recover. And when this crisis has passed, hear me loud and clear, quality healthcare will be a guaranteed right for all. In the U.S. Senate, I will lead that fight. I'm Joe Kennedy, and I approve this message. I should add that Joe Kennedy also has been having almost nightly sessions uh, on Zoom around various issues with particular constituencies. It's pretty regular. Now, on the flip side, for Ed Markey, he's done a different thing. So this is an Internet ad that he had, and he uh, chose a couple of people who have been solid supporters of him to speak for him. His voice is actually not on this ad. So here is Gladys Vega of the Chelsea Collaborative and Dan Rivera, mayor of Lawrence, giving support for Senator Ed Markey in a Markey campaign ad. You have always been a friend to Chelsea, and I'm glad that we have a senator such as you representing um, Chelsea, Massachusetts, and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Every time I think that Ed Markey's out there fighting for us in Washington, every time I think about smart people doing those two things for us in Lawrence, um, I think we're going to have a lovely day. And one more thing. Ed Markey has taken to a podcast to sort of similar to what um, Senator Joe Kennedy is doing, but he's doing Zoom. So here's a little bit of Ed Markey on the Markey U.S. Senate Campaign podcast, Markey on the Mic. Hello, Massachusetts and beyond. This is Ed Markey, and you're listening to Markey on the Mic. And we are discussing how COVID-19 is impacting mental health and what resources are available to help families to cope. I hope you will enjoy this important conversation. Share it far and wide and subscribe to hear more Markey on the Mic. All right. Peter Ubitaccio, you get first crack. Uh, how uh, effective are these virtual campaigns? <laughs> I just can't help thinking about the Saturday Night Live skit in Dukakis After Dark when I hear that uh, Marky on the mic. So, um, okay, you're going way back now. <laughs> I know. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, these these are the, the new tools, right? They, they can't do what we know works best, which is um, to canvas. Uh, to have volunteers go door to door to talk to uh, voters, um, so they they're gonna they have to come up with these these new ways of reaching out to people. I think, you know, what's fascinating to me is my guess is these messages are reaching uh, voters who are are already going to vote in the Democratic primary. Uh, you know, sort of high information, very active Democratic uh, voters who have a good sense of this race. Uh, and that most others are not paying much attention because it's just it's just hard to break through. So, you know, I think these are these are the tactics they have. I I, I don't know how uh, effective they're going to be because we've never really been in a in a modern political season where candidates couldn't go out and participate in parades or go door to door. Um, Shannon. So, you know, it's interesting in a normal race in political science, we talk about how the challenger really has to sort of convince voters why they shouldn't vote for the incumbent. And that seems to be a little flipped on its head here, right? Kennedy came out of the, the gates with a natural advantage. And so Markey had to come up with a plan as to why people should keep him. 
Um, I think he followed, he was following sort of a classic uh, John Wall strategy, you know, from back in the Deval Patrick days um, to get a bunch of convention delegates to go into the convention and have a big splash when he, you know, gets a lot more um, convention support than Kennedy. I think he was really successful in doing that and organizing for um, the town caucuses, but then the pandemic hit and that game plan blew up. Right. And so we see that Markey had to scramble to get the signatures to get on the ballot. Right. And that was a really costly endeavor for him. You know, you got to mail petitions out to voters, mail them back to get that, whereas Kennedy was already doing that. Um, the effort that they put into the convention is kind of lost. Right. Because we're not having a convention. So when Markey would have been getting a big splash in the next week or so about the convention, that's gone. And so, you know, I think this has been a little bit more difficult on the Markey campaign because the way their their plan would have unfolded probably quite nicely um, if there weren't a pandemic. But there is a pandemic. And so they've had to regroup and re-strategize. And I think um, that's hurt them a little. I think they're burning through cash um, a little bit more quickly than Kennedy because of the things that they've had to do. Um, and that may hurt him as the race really starts to ramp up here in the, as we head into the primary. Erin. Um, this race is so confounding. Usually when an incumbent is being challenged from his or her own, own party, it's because they're damaged goods in some way, like they had some controversy or the, the challenger is running from a different ideological wing of the party. You know, the moderate versus the progressive, Tea Party versus the moderate. And this race doesn't, that is not Joe Kennedy and Ed Markey are, there are some differences amongst them in terms of emphasis of their progressivism, but they're progressives. And then COVID happens and we've obviously never run an election in the modern era during a pandemic. Um, when I heard the Kennedy ad that you played, I was again struck by all those things are true that for Democrats do want, you know, uh, more medical, do want uh, national healthcare as a as a right, all those things. But so does Ed Markey. Um, you know, the elephant in the room is that uh, what is Joe Kennedy bringing that Ed Markey hasn't on the policy side? He's obviously bringing the Kennedy name, and there might be a certain nostalgia, certainly um, as we go through COVID. So that ad struck me as still, you know, not answering the million dollar question. And then, you know, the marking on the mic, like I said, I just can't unhear that. That was just <laughs> awkward. And I look away from awkward scenes in a movie. So, so I, I don't know what to do there. But I mean, this race is just wildly confounding. I mean, if I had to place money on this race, I think uh, Kennedy wins. But it's just such an interesting flipped race that, you know, mainline Democrats um, seem to be with Kennedy. But those who really pay attention and live in politics and work in policy are with Ed Markey. So it's fascinating, and I just wish both of them were out campaigning uh, elsewhere and maybe not uh, in their basements, um, but for a state politics race. Are, are people paying attention to these races? Let me just ask that no. question. No. Oh, okay. Well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my colleagues might disagree, but... I follow but... up on what Aaron said? I think another sort of interesting inversion is sort of the age demographics in this race, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Usually when you have a young challenger, the young voters are lined up for him and the older voters are with the older candidate. But there's the flip here, right? right. Like all the <laughs> young progressive 
activists are with Markey and all of the older voters are with Kennedy. So to, to Aaron's point, it's just such a confounding race. It, can, it, it so goes against sort of everything we know that it's hard to sort of understand. And I think Aaron's right that I think if you're going to bet, you might put your money on Kennedy. But I also think it's anybody's race at this point because there's just so many things we don't know about what's going on right now. Um, Peter, is anybody paying attention? Um, you know, only only the the politicos uh, who pay close attention to anything that's happening. Um, most voters aren't paying attention because you know there are there are hundred thousand dead Americans as a result of a pandemic that still has them really frightened. So, you know, I, I think that uh, everything my colleagues have said is is accurate. This is the most confounding race because it's so it's so unusual. One thing that I, I do wonder is that you know Ed Markey is a well liked incumbent. And uh, voters, Democratic voters uh, in a moment like this may decide, you know, I would I just prefer to go with the person I know and have liked for a long time. And Mm -hmm. it's it's just it's hard for both to really get a message out there. (laughs) I was going to say that's both of them. (laughs) Well, that's right. And that's the thing. Joe Kennedy is also well regarded uh, among Democratic voters. And so, you know, it it will be interesting to to figure out if if Democratic voters turn out with if they have a high tolerance for a challenge within the party during a moment like this. Well, I have two observations because, um, as you all have noted, that the young progressives are with Markey, then I think his, you know, web stuff ought to be better. His Internet stuff should be better. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I, I know. The ad where Gladys Vega and Dan Rivera are in, you do not hear his voice. It's all text. And those are the only people speaking. Really? He actually has a clip of Joe Kennedy in his ad. No, 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 no. I mean, even I know that, and I've never run a campaign. So I'm just thinking, what is happening? His social media, though, has been pretty good. And um, he sort of like leaned into the, uh, and I don't mean this discouraging, it's going to sound bad. He sort of leaned into the dorkiness a little bit. And he's, you know, wearing the coat and the mask and, you know, he's got on sneakers and he's out there playing basketball. And it's sort of, you know, you don't expect Ed Markey to be good on the court. So I, I think his social media has been much better, like his Twitter, I should say, more specifically, has been better than like, um, you know, the canned ad spots. Can I talk about those sneakers for a second? Like all of us old people are like, Ugh, what's with those white sneakers? And all of the young people are like, oh, Ed Markey has some vintage whatever sneakers they're at they are. Yeah, he's right? got cool kicks. <laughs> right, we see them as dorky, but all the young kids are like impressed with Ed Markey's kicks. Let me tell you, I got some sneakerheads in my house and they love it. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I'll just say this about Ed Markey, having been on the annual Martin Luther King breakfast at the, you know, the big one that's, you know, downtown. I mean, he actually shut the whole thing down. There was like a sustained standing ovation. I mean, his speech was off the charts. It's like, that's not the Ed Markey I've ever seen except in that setting. It's pretty interesting. (laughs) And I think Joe Kennedy thought Ed Markey was going to be a lot easier beat than he's been. Ed Markey's been in politics for a long time. And he's won races. And, you know, I mean, we all know the wink nod of Joe Kennedy is he's running against Ed Markey because he doesn't want to run against Ayanna Presley, mm-hmm. Maura Healy, Catherine Clark, you know, the considerable logjam of talent in this state. So, you know, he looked at Ed Markey and thought he, he's, he's going to be an, an easier beat. Hmm. And, uh, hmm. and that's not proving to be the case. At, you know, to extend the med- metaphor, Ed Markey has game. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, uh, you brought to our attention, Aaron, while you're talking this race in Chelsea with uh, 
Chelsea Counselor Damali Vido, I hope that's how I'm pronouncing it, it may be VDOT, um, who's running against uh, State Representative uh, Dan Ryan. Why do you think this is so interesting to pay attention to? I think this is a race to watch. Um, Damalia had been I think it was president of the Chelsea um, City Council and had come up via like environmental politics. But she's the one who really became the public face, at least in politics, of calling attention to the, the exorbitant rates of COVID in Chelsea and why that occurred because of economic inequality, uh, working class individuals, disproportionately brown and black. And so she's running a much more traditional incumbent challenge and that she's coming from a much more progressive wing. And I think her bio um, is different, very different than AOC, different than Ayanna Presley, but what they do share is they're more progressive women of color who have bios that are full and the sense of, you know, Damalia talks very openly about having a disability, uh, having been a, a you know, felon long her, her past, coming up kind of tough. And, you know, I teach women in politics, so that's sort of how this race got on my radar. And I thought, you know, you always want women to have ambition and run. And she's doing that. And she's doing that with a resume that isn't the, uh, of the Joe Kennedy variety of the, you know, go to Harvard, go to Yale, that kind of thing. So. I think um, she's a rising star and won a race that replicates that, you know, outsider challenge that has become increasingly normative in Massachusetts. Hmm. Coming up, Joe Biden talks authentic blackness and VP candidates and reopening politics. Who gets to decide the guidelines for Massachusetts reopening? It's more insight and analysis from the Mass Politics Profs. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our politics during a pandemic discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth, and Peter Ubatacio of Stonehill College. Let's jump back into the conversation. Well, uh, recently we learned that Joe Biden has an insight into authentic blackness, as he expressed uh, in an interview with Charlemagne the God on a popular radio program based in New York called The Breakfast Club. Let's listen. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I mean, really. I didn't even know what to think when I heard it. Uh, and then, of course, he walked it back, we should say, uh, saying that's not what he meant. He wasn't meant to be exulting. But what Charlemagne the God, who, by the way, that's the name of the radio host, uh, was trying to say was, do not take this community for granted. My question to you about what you're going to do has absolutely nothing to do with what Trump may or may not be doing, but it's really focused on what you're going to do. No, and it, it, it's a it's that issue of have black voters been taken for granted. I, I, I know not to weigh in on who is and who is not authentically black. My name is Aaron O'Brien. I'm white. I, I do not know that it's not territory uh, that I should be exerting voice in. And so when Joe Biden is, it just makes you 
yes, he said it was a joke or he got like carried away in the moment, all that, but just, you know, the Democratic nominees should know better than to, to make that joke is my take. Um, Shannon. I mean, I would 100% agree with Aaron. Um, and, you know, and maybe put this in sort of a larger context of um, if you look at like many sort of white voters, many white voters have uh, become much more liberal on issues of race, particularly Democratic voters. Um, and so I think in, in some ways, white voters and white political scientists are learning, right, that you know, we can't we can't speak for African-American voters in the African-American community about how to take that statement, that joke, whatever it may be. I, again, I'm Shannon Jenkins. I'm white. Right? I can't I can't really say how black voters should feel about that comment. Peter Rubitaccio. Yeah, I agree with my colleagues. I mean, I think that, that we have to, you know, those are moments of pause. I think what, one thing we have come to expect from Joe Biden is that he, he does not have an off button when he's speaking in that way. It has gotten him into trouble before. As a man who has spent a good part of his career in the United States Senate, where people can just speak aimlessly for hours on end and think they're, they're, they have something important to add, <laughs> uh, it's a bad habit. And, uh, you know, my first reaction to that is the same as my colleagues. Like, I, I don't really know. <laughs> I'm, I, I think I need to listen to how others I, uh, respond to that. You know, what, what did Charlemagne the God have to say about that afterward is, is probably more important to me than what the immediate consensus on social media is. And I think that's, that's where we should ultimately land. But, I, you know, Joe Biden knows better, um, uh, but he is, as he says, often too cavalier. And, and it's frustrating because uh, it will be used against him, I think, largely unfairly. And uh, it, this, is, this is a race where those kinds of, of comments do him no good. Um, they distract. And I, I fear, if you're the Democratic Party, that there's, there's going to be more of this and, and in some instances will make a race competitive where it really shouldn't be. So I'd like to quote from Michelle Norris's column in the uh, Washington Post. She is Black, so she gets mm -hmm. to say stuff. She's wrote, Black voters who think the Democratic Party takes them for granted were offended and took to Twitter in droves to say so. Progressive voters who were already questioning Biden's past support of busing and the crime bill and his treatment of Anita Hill have another reason to fault his nomination. Democrats of all stripes who worry about Biden's propensity toward verbal gaffes will continue to wring their hands. And Republicans immediately rolled out their outrage machinery to stoke dissension within the Democratic base. The hill just got steeper for Joe Biden, and I think that's actually a good thing. Democrats do have a tendency to take black votes for granted. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a, a pretty on point. And with regard to the taking black votes for granted or trying to for lack of a better expression, sort of speak the language of the African-American community, however you think it to be. There is another scene from Charlemagne the God uh, with Hillary Clinton. This is back in 2016. So this is Hillary Clinton being interviewed on The Breakfast Club back in 2016. What's something that you always carry with you? Hot Just sauce. Really? You, yeah. Yeah. Really? Are you getting information right now? <laughs> Hot sauce. Hot sauce wow. in my bag, Swag? Hot sauce. Really? Yes. Now, listen, yes. I just want you to know people are going to see this and say, okay, she's pandering to black people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is it working? 
<laughs> so I, that's, you know, that's the same kind of conversation, different setting. And a lot of people did feel like she was pandering. She claims she has hot sauce in her bag all the time. For people who are not aware, the reference to hot sauce in the bag swag is a quote from a lyric of Beyonce's from her formation song, which is when she talks about herself and says she keeps hot sauce in her bag. So that's as authentically black as you can get, Beyonce, and hot sauce in her bag. So there you go. <laughs> but in any case, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, you have to you have to be uh, smart about. And here's the thing I wanted to raise to all of you, because it seems to me that there is a very uh, narrow way of looking at this. Well, you vote for Trump or you don't. If you're African-American, you have no other choice. <clears throat> well, A, some African-Americans do vote for Trump. I've written about that. But more to the point, you don't vote. There's your other choice. And people never seem mm-hmm. to think about that. And that's huge. If people do not go to the polls, whether it's mail-in ballots or in person, that's the end of that tune. Yeah, well, I, would, I, would, I was going to say that I think most political consultants and most political scientists are well aware of this, right? And, and, and part of the reason why, why Clinton lost um, was because, you know, minority voters didn't come out, obviously, in large of turnout as they did for Barack Obama, right, the first black president. Um, but you see this also, you know, reflected in sort of the veep stakes, right? Like Amy Klobuchar is now trying to, you know, reach out to the to the black community, which, you know, too little, too late. And I don't think she did herself any sort of favors by she released a statement about, you know, George Floyd saying the, the headline was the officer involved killing, Right. I mean, the officer involved killing. Right. That's just not that's not how you talk about that was a murder. Mm. Right. So these issues of whether black voters are being taken for granted really is weighing heavily, I think, in in Biden's decision about who he selects as a running mate, as it should. It should. He's dependent upon black voters. You transitioned to my next point, which was about his 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 choice of running mates and the fact that there are a number of black activists who have come together as a group uh, and been vocal about uh, their opposition to Klobuchar as a possibility on that list, because I know she's on that list. So there as is Elizabeth Warren, as is Val Deming. Some people may not know who she is. She's a Democrat from Florida. If you've watched any of the hearings about on any subject, she comports herself uh excellently in terms of how she questions and just the dignity with which she engages. Um, but she's uh, pretty passionate about, about her work. So uh, mm-hmm. that's somebody that's not a name that's well known. And then there are also uh, some governors out in the Midwest that other people don't know well that are also on that list. So what do you all think in terms of what direction he's going to go? Uh, I know this is a, a little bit of a crystal ball situation, but Aaron, um which way will he go on the on the on the VP pick? It's going to be a woman. He said that. So yeah, yeah. Beyond that, well, I think Shannon articulated perfectly that that you know the case for an African American woman um, that uh, you know it, why Amy Klobuchar is problematic that she's moderate and she was viewed as not progressive prior and her statement in response to the protest in, um, in Minneapolis had been wanting at best. Um, so, you know, that's the one line. The, the other side of it, and I, it's disgusting and sad, is that if and when Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris or, Val, um, you know, the representative from Florida, like, if those women are selected, the, the venom that will be coming their way, there's a certain proportion of the electorate, swing electorate, independents, 
and Democrats who don't want to say it aloud who wouldn't be uncomfortable with that choice. Uh, I don't like that reality. I think it's abhorrent, but I think it's true. Um, that's the decision that um, Joe Biden has to make. I would agree with that. I think that any person of color actually is just going to get held to pay. And by the way, yeah. there are some uh, Latino candidates on that list as well, I should mention. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Joining me are three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Shannon Jenkins of UMass Dartmouth, and Peter Ubitaccio of Stonehill College. We're discussing the latest local and national political stories you need to know. Okay, Peter, you didn't weigh in on the VP pick. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Well, um, Professor O'Brien is still going to owe me an old-fashioned, which was our last, I bet on the last time we were on the <laughs> show. Right. She, she predicted Stacey Abrams. I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, you know, I think someone like uh, Val Deming's stock has certainly risen um, because of, you know, her, her background, her, her current work. You know, I, I think Joe Biden will do well to do the thing he knows is the most important, which is to find a partner to govern. Uh, the vice presidential choice isn't going to bring along a state. Uh, it's, it's not going to make much of a difference in terms of uh, what happens in November. Uh, he needs a partner. Uh, he needs to be he needs a version of himself to Barack Obama, you know, or Al Gore to to Bill Clinton. And so, you know, within the list that he's got, there are really many good people there who have governed, uh, who are serious about their jobs, who will bring a lot of heft to the role. And, uh, you know, next to a presidential spouse, uh, the vice president, if the president chooses, is the most important person in an administration. And so I, I suspect and hope that that's the lens that he's going to use when he makes his ultimate pick. Which brings me to this. Um, there are a, there's a fair amount of rumbling, some now more vocal, others a little bit underground, about Stacey Abrams. People like her and respect her, but they uh, object to her what they believe is an open play for the vice presidency, like an aggressive move uh, for the job. And to your point, she has not governed. She has run, but she has not won. So while people respect her and think she brings a lot to the table, that's of concern to them, and they don't like the fact that she's aggressively pushing forward. I will be the first to say that could be a sexist response, but I don't know. Shannon, you want to respond to that? I 100% think, I mean, I think you have to come at that from a lens of intersectionality. It's not just sexist race, mm -hmm. right? Um, that women should not show ambition. Um, and particularly black women, right, who can be seen when they voice their opinions as angry or opinionated or bitter, right? And so I think if a man were making those sort of, a white man were making those overtures, we wouldn't bat an eye. Um, so I, I find it deeply problematic that, that that sort of lens is applied to Stacey Abrams. I think there are sort of legitimate things to be considered, lack of experience, maybe one, but the fact that she says she wants it, shouldn't be something that's held against her. Okay. I agree. I don't want a VP who's like, mm, I don't know. I'm unsure. <laughs> Come on. Like, this is a dire political moment. There's ambition. Uh, all these politicians are wildly ambitious. Why are we hiding from that? I, I agree wholeheartedly with Shannon um, because of her race uh, uh, and her herness. <laughs> Um, she's paying for the same ambition that every single one of them feels and is acting on. Um, you know, she was a, the minority leader in, in the state house. She has been an entrepreneur. It, it might not be the same resume as, um, you know, uh, Joe Biden had, but uh, years and years in the Senate isn't something that tends to mobilize young people and communities 
to our earlier conversation that turn out sometimes and not other times. Uh, to me, she's a breath of fresh air in some ways. Um, but to the point, she is already getting that pushback on her. And if a woman of color is picked, if a, any VP who's a woman is going to get a lot of pushback, it, it's just going to be ugly. I, I think any of them can handle it and can win, but they're going to get attacks in ways that uh, a more classic, i.e. read white man wouldn't. Okay. Let me move on to reopening. Reopening America, specifically reopening uh, Massachusetts. Two of you, by that I mean two of the mass politics profs, have an interesting take. Aaron, you're one of them. But I'm going to start with Mo Cunningham's take. And he's very concerned that Governor Baker's reopen advisory panel had, as his headline says, no place for heroes. So no nurses, no teachers, no construction workers, no hotel and restaurant workers, no custodians, no hospital orderlies, no bus drivers, no nothing, but plenty of CEOs. And um, he says that just wasn't the way to to go in terms of trying to figure out what phases we should be in, what the guidelines should look like when the phases come into play. I'll start with you, Peter. What's your response to Mo's take? You know, I, I think that it was a, a lapse for Governor Baker to not do that. You know, the, these are frontline uh, people who uh, many of them will be the most at risk uh, because of the nature of their work. And so, you know, this this Governor Baker has a has a particular kind of view of these things. I think a, a managerial view. It's it's what um, many people like about him. In this particular moment, he would have done well to ensure that frontline workers. Uh, were brought in uh, via unions or, or just, you know, other kinds of associations where their voices could have been made more paramount in, in these kinds of conversations. And what we're really talking about is is not just sort of reopening the economy in that, that theoretical sense. It's that we are, we are putting people back into jobs where they're going to be interacting with carriers of the virus, and it, their voices should have been part of those conversations. And if I may say, this is not a quote-unquote politically correct situation, but Shannon, these are people who actually are in the job so they could say better to, for example, with the bus drivers, enter from the back or people who are in the grocery stores have to have gloves on or whatever at this point. These kinds of practical things that have to be implemented so that reopening can be both successful and safe. Yeah, you know, I remember way back, I, I worked as a computer program and I developed a new system and we went and we talked to the management and this, this is how the system is used, blah, blah, blah. And then we went, we talked to the people who actually use the system and they're like, oh, we don't do that at all. <laughs> We've developed this workaround and we do that and this is how it actually works. And so having the perspective of those of people who are actually driving buses, who are actually, you know, um, ringing up groceries, who are actually healthcare workers, they know how the system actually works. Yeah. If anybody's ever watched Undercover Boss on CBS, uh, you can see that the the bosses are always shocked. Oh, wow. This is what's happening. Yeah, that's what's happening. Uh, Let me shift to you, Aaron, because your piece is America the Spoiled. And the essence of it is that we're Americans are spoiled and don't want to sacrifice any of their regular routines, like wearing a mask and and or Mm -hmm. gloves or being socially distanced to make sure that we stay safe uh, during a period of reopening. Yep, I, I have a cousin who I'm very close with, but he's 11 years younger than me. And when he was a kid, he would sometimes, it's not fair to me. <laughs> uh, and that's why I feel like uh, a significant minority. And in that piece, I do make the point, like 80% of Americans, obviously crossing you know party lines, 
are willing to do the things, uh, the wearing the mask, the you know, staying home, but that 20% is really vocal and they're out there and they're disproportionately of the MAGA crowd, not entirely. And I'm just really struck for, you know, all the bravado, all the make America great again, all the machismo, they lasted about six or seven weeks when they actually had to make a sacrifice. And, you know, we're all mad that this virus is here, but you can, you know, it, it's not anyone's fault. You have to deal with the reality. I, I, there's a willful ignorance that somehow this virus is particularly unfair to them and not the rest of us. And equating freedom with the right to get other people sick in order to drink Bud Light at a pool just doesn't ring patriotic to me. Well, the other part of this, which is a study by Carnegie Mellon University, the researchers analyzed 200 million tweets and found that half of those tweets um, that were angry about the reopening of America, that, you know, we, this is our freedoms, blah, 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 on that whole take, were bots, meaning mm-hmm. those robotic arms that are programmed by Russia and others of their ilk. So you don't even really have a, a true sentiment of those people who feel that way because half of those, um, at least half, according to the study, are, you know, automatic ro- robots. And a lot of those protesters, we come to find out, have been, you know, driving in from other states. That The idea that these are, some are, but that these are completely organic protests, uh, it just isn't borne out by the evidence. And again, it's to your point with the bots, it's a minority of Americans who feel this way but they're given, being given disproportionate voice and influence. Uh, Peter. You know, I was just going to say that another reason for us all to remember that Twitter is not real life. And mm. you know, the, the things that we, we see on social media that seemed to sometimes have momentum does not mean that, that the, the general population shares that view. And so, you know, I, I have I've long been concerned. I am increasingly concerned about how, controversies that erupt on on social media find their way into mainstream media, you know, and start and become the lead stories. Uh, I just, we, we all need to be much, so much more careful about how we approach those controversies when we're seeing it on Twitter, knowing uh, what's behind them is typically not uh, a public opinion or mass sentiment, but some something that is um, very specifically trying to drive opinion in a certain direction. It's kind of hard, though, when you see the numbers of people who are, for example, during Memorial Day weekend, just all crowded together in the pool. And when asked, said, well, you know, the president isn't wearing a mask. I'm not worried about it kind of thing. So, Kelly, we, we don't get agreement on anything in America. And, and to the 15 percent that don't think kittens are cute, you're weird, right? 80 <laughs> percent agreement about something in America is like near unanimous. There's always going to be people who don't agree with something. And so I think, right, the bots are taking that really small minority and amplifying it. Um, and so I think it's important to, to remember that this is really just a small portion of the American public. Um, I, I I agree with you. I think what what's uh, troubling to me is that it's very politicized now. You know, something that should be under the umbrella of public health has become uh, quite politicized. Listen, people have real legitimate concerns. Forty some million people are unemployed about work and reopening America so that work can ostensibly return. It won't be, I think some of those people don't understand, it's not going to be as it was before, but it is going to be something. So I get that. Um, there's plenty of, of legitimate anxiety around that. It's just that it's, it's 
you know, there's a, there's something looming that has to do with all of our health and safety. And it's it's just a little problematic to see how um, some of the cavalierness is directed toward that. And, you know, some real quick, some of the public health, um, you know, uh, scholars I've been reading have been talking about the importance of not making it binary. You know, you're either crowded at that pool having drinks and just, you know, caution to the wind or you're staying home and you're a hermit. Um, like neither of those are viable forever, right? Um, and to be thinking more about, you know, relative risk, proportional risk that it, it, if we think of it as a sliding scale as opposed to a binary, then uh, that 80% gets even larger because, you know, I might disagree with some of the things my family members are doing, but compared to, you know, that they are being safe, just maybe not as safe as I want them to be. <laughs> like, I'm like, mm. why are you going to the grocery store? You have, you don't need flour, you have other stuff, you know, mm. that kind of thing. So I found that helpful in conversations to be reminded of the people are doing it right the vast majority of the time. That's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, well, you're right. And that's a that's a great uplifting note at uh, when we started this conversation on quite a down note. Well, as always, it's uh, great to talk to all of you on these issues. And um, as we can see, just some of what we touched on today is going to um, ramp up even more in the coming months because actually Memorial Day was not only the official start of summer per se in normal times, but it's also kind of the kickoff of the political season, you know, in earnest. And that's upended as well. So we have to all wait to see what's going to happen. Agreed. Yeah. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you for having us. I can't wait to see the three of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks, Kelly. Erin O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Shannon Jenkins is a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. And Peter Rubitaccio is the founding dean of the Thomas and Donna May School of Arts and Sciences and an associate professor of political science at Stonehill College. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, masspoliticsprofs.org. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubelie and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.